0: Overnight, a barrage of Russian missiles struck cities across Ukraine, killing several civilians. Russia says the wave of attacks are in retaliation for a border incursion last week that Moscow blames on Kyiv. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says the airstrikes damaged critical infrastructure and residential buildings in 10 regions of the country. The Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, occupied by Russian forces, lost power in Thursday's assault. That's according to the state nuclear operator. Now experts are warning that a new phase of war is on the horizon, not just fighting on the ground, but a new wave of cyber warfare. In the past year, Ukraine has mostly been able to shut down or quickly recover from Russian cyber attacks. But new data from Google's Threat Analysis Group says Russia is prepared to worsen its cyber attacks if the war shifts in Ukraine's favor. These Russian cyber attacks could reach NATO-allied countries, threatening cyber security globally. What have we learned from a year of cyber warfare in Ukraine, and how can the U.S. protect its digital infrastructure from Russian cyber attacks? We'll get into all that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join us for future conversations. Download the 1A Pop app and leave us a message. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us from Utah is Dina Temple-Raston. She's the host and executive producer of Click Here. That's a weekly cyber and intelligence news podcast. Dina, it's great to have you back.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So you and other intelligence experts call Russia's war against Ukraine the world's first true hybrid war. What do you mean?
1: Well, one way, one way to think about it is that cyber warfare had previously been sort of a tool instead of a strategy. And now it's completely folded into the campaign itself, seamlessly. So, so can I give you a quick example sure. that we reported on? And it'll kind of explain how the, the mindset has changed. So late last year, we did a story about a huge energy company in Ukraine called Naftogaz It's the country's largest state uh, oil and natural gas company. And Russia had been trying with mixed results to hack into them for years and for obvious reasons, because it would let them turn out the lights. So just before the war, Naftogaz calls in Microsoft and another U.S. cyber company called Mandiant, and they ask them to fortify their network perimeter, you know, to make the walls around their computer system stronger, and they do. And then the war starts, and all this malware comes in, and it keeps reappearing in their systems, and these passwords and logins continue to be stolen. And they start to think, oh, no, we've got an insider threat. We have some, we have Russians inside, you know, Naftogaz" And it turns out that they hadn't accounted for occupying Russian troops, folding cyber into their plan. So as the Russians were going into the eastern part of Ukraine, they were were occupying critical facilities in uh, Ukraine's infrastructure, you know, like telecoms and energy. And then they were plugging their computers into their networks from the inside. So they had computer geeks that were actually embedded with their occupying forces, and they'd physically capture a data center and then the computer geeks would plug in their systems. And then they were also like grabbing computers from people as they were invading. So a Ukrainian employee from Naftagas would have to hand over their computer and all of a sudden they were then in the system. So how did Naftagas fix this? The way they fixed it is by changing their mindset and thinking about cyber as being part of a broader war. they actually had employees call their managers and say, OK, the Russians are coming into town now. And they would shut down that part of the, the network. So that's what they mean by, by you know hybrid war.
0: Well, last April, in the early days of the war, we spoke about how technology was being used. Katerina Sadova is a research fellow at the Center for Security and Emerging Technology at Georgetown University. And here's what she had to say then.
1: Cyber is a tool of choice uh, between war and peace, and we are very clearly at an open war. We've seen a lot of distributed denial-of-service attacks initially in preparation for uh, the open declaration of uh, full-scale invasion. Uh, A lot of it has been thwarted because they are fairly, uh, fairly easy to restore from and recover from. Uh, We also have seen mentions of what now up to six uh, wiper malware uh, strands that um, have been found in Ukrainian networks um, that have been found and and thwarted, at least for the time being.
0: Dina, you, you explained sort of the physicality, I guess I would call it, of how the technology has changed. But how else are cyber tools being used on both sides of this conflict in ways
1: that are new? Uh, I, I think that just sort of the, the sheer volume is new. There was a big report that came out from the Ukrainian. Uh, they have like a CISA, a, a cyber infrastructure and security agency like ours. And the big report came out just this week. And they said that they've had uh, 1, 000, over 1,000 critical and really high-level attacks just in the past year. And that's a lot, right? So that's part of it. And then she mentioned uh, a wiper malware. And this is a new thing that's come out that we haven't seen as much of. Wiper malware, just to explain what it is, is it's it, it, basically think of it as a malware that comes in and wipes your entire computer, wipes your hard drive. And then in addition to that, starts to, create havoc within your uh, network more generally. And it was around a little bit, but the kind of use of my wiper malware that we're seeing now, we've never seen before. And when you talk about bleed over, which you talked about in your intro, one of the concerns is that wiper malware now becomes the norm as opposed to something that you're just using during war.
0: A year ago, when Russia invaded Ukraine, cybersecurity analysts and Ukrainian military officials expected a Russian cyber attack that would cripple their systems, but, but it never came, or at least it wasn't successful. What happened?
1: Well, there are three theories. Oh, the first theory is, uh, in bef- round about December, before Christmas, a team from um, US Cybercom, which is sort of the, the military computer geeks, right? They went to Ukraine and tried to help them protect their systems. And there's a sense that they probably found a lot of things that the Russians had sort of dropped on Ukrainian systems in anticipation of the invasion. And they very quietly pulled those things away. So when Russia, and I know it's much more complicated than pushing a button, but when Russia went to go push the button, the things that were supposed to work didn't work. The second theory is that, in fact, Russia was so sure that it was going to take three days to get to Kiev and depose uh, President Zelensky that they wanted they didn't want to shut things down ahead of time or shut things down in a way that would turn the people against them, since they had to win the people over once that they had toppled uh, once they'd toppled Zelensky. And then the third theory is that we've given the Russians a lot of credit for being amazing hackers. And, you know, she mentioned DDoS attacks. DDoS attacks are like the peanut butter and jelly of, you know, hacking. It's, they're pretty simple. It doesn't take a lot of skill. So there's also this thought that maybe the Russians also aren't as big in cyber or as talented in cyber as we've given them credit for. And one of the things that we've definitely learned is that Russians are really good at, at planning cyber attacks long-term, but they're not super creative in turning on a dime. And one of the things that the US forces are known for is this sort of evil genius creativity of doing things that people aren't expecting. They're not seeing that from the Russians.
0: That leads us to this email we got from Thomas, who says, it seems that from time to time, the Russians run out of high-tech weapons and the combat tactics revert to the trench warfare of the past world wars. I wonder how much damage is being caused with cyber weapons versus the destruction done by conventional artillery. What can you tell us, Dina?
1: Well, I think right now, I, I think just about everybody can see where the big damage is is coming. It's their drone attacks and it's the kinetic stuff that they're doing now. Um, and the concern was that cyber was going to do that, right? As you said, it's sort of the unseen part of war that we're not seeing. And and that hasn't happened. And people, I just have to say, you know, everybody's talking now about as Russia feels that Ukraine is gaining advantage, it will launch more cyber attacks. We've been saying that for the past year. So the fact that the intelligence community is saying that now, we expect more, they've been expecting it from the beginning. And they were also, what's also very interesting about cyber attacks is that um, in a way, they're not as pinpointed. So if you hit a network, and that network is connected to, say, Germany, all of a sudden, you have gotten a NATO uh, uh, ally as part of the conflict.
0: Well, for your podcast, Click Here, you spoke with Viktor jora He's a Ukrainian official in charge of defending the country's computer networks and infrastructure. Let's take a listen.
2: Ukraine witnessed the the most uh, destructive uh, cyber attacks uh, in history over the last eight years. We were working hard on uh, strengthening our uh, cybersecurity infrastructure for, for the last one or two years. Uh, I suppose we were well prepared for this uh, cyber war. So our army tries to stop uh, the aggression on the land, and our IT army uh, is doing the same uh, in the cyberspace.
0: Now we hear Victor there mention a Ukrainian IT army. And not long after the war began, your team spoke with Yanni. He's a member of the IT army living in Finland. And he talked about why and how he joined.
2: Basically, once I started hearing about civilians and children and women and elderly getting bombed or killed or starved, is when I basically decided that I have to do something.
1: What was the sign-up process like, or was there one?
2: There wasn't any. That's, the, that's one of the big problems here, actually. Basically, anybody can join in and start doing whatever.
0: Dina, what more did you learn about this Ukrainian IT army and how it's fighting back?
1: Well, so there are two. There are essentially two Ukrainian IT armies, right? There's one that's connected to the military, and that's the sort of more traditional one. But what they did at the beginning of the war is they asked for volunteers. Basically, think of it as IT professionals, cybersecurity professionals around the world to come and help them. And uh, Yanni, uh, he has an accent. He's actually from Finland. And he's one of the administrators of the IT Army. And when he says there was no sign-up, it was basically everybody sort of gets into a chat room and says, okay, what do we do? And one of the things that they were doing early on was DDoS attacks. These are basically attacks where you flood a network with so much traffic that it it, it, it basically goes down, right? And they're super basic. But one of the problems with this was because there is no real coordination, it's just all these volunteers across different time zones, um, Yanni was telling us that they have some of their higher-level hackers, say, trying to hack into, and this is an actual example he used, uh, the Russian uh, railway system. And uh, they'd be <laughs> hacking this, and then all of a sudden, it would be taken down by a DDoS attack by some of these sort of um, uh, IT army folks who maybe weren't as skilled. So there's, there's a term in, in cyber. It's called uh, script kiddies. Uh, And it basically means that you uh, can't really code very well and you kind of fake it and use other people's code and pass it off as your own. They're kind of the lowest level in in the cyber world. So a lot of script kiddies joined the IT volunteer army as well as a lot of people who really know what they're doing, people who are cybersecurity professionals. And the the concern when you talk about what's going to happen after the war, the concern is that you're getting all these people who are getting new cyber skills because they're part of the uh, Ukrainian IT Army, and almost like mercenaries who go and fight, you know, like when they fought the Spanish Civil War, they they go and fight, they've stopped, and then they have nothing to do. And so what do they do instead? They find somewhere else to do this. And so what we're doing is we're kind of training a, a global contingent of hackers, people who might not be that good at hacking, get all these skills, and then when this is, this is over, what are they gonna do with that? Are we? Cre- creating a whole sort of generation of um, hacking mercenaries. That's my concern about the IT Army. Well, Dean, I'm also curious
0: to hear, in in this new age of the, the hybrid war, if a Russian attack, for instance, a Russian cyber attack, affects a NATO-allied nation, what what does that mean? How do NATO allies react, even if it was not a direct attack but just... Spillover from from an attack against Ukraine.
1: Well, actually, that's already happened in a in a small way. There was a Viasat, which is how the Ukrainian military talks to each other. One of the ways that they were talking to each other, the Russians took that down. That was hacked, and it went down for a while. And of course, it was the way uh, people in Europe were actually using the internet as well. So there was that spillover, and so there was sort of this collective gasp, like, "What's going to happen now?" And nothing happened yet, Uh, but. Part of the reason that we think that the Russians may be a little bit circumspective into the way that they're doing these cyber operations is because they're worried about that spillover. Because cyber is... It sounds like it would be a precise weapon, but it's not. You don't always know exactly who's connected to what network. So you attack a network that, say, you know, a bunch of energy companies from Ukraine is on, and you would attack their servers, and you don't even know that you're going to have bleed over maybe across the border in Poland. It's almost the same as, you know... Um, uh, these missiles that go, right, they're really worried that the missiles are going to cross the border. Well, it's even more uh, likely that that can happen with a cyber attack, which is why they've been so circumspect, I think.
0: I want to bring another voice to the discussion. Brecht Castel is a journalist and fact checker at NAC. That's a Belgian weekly news magazine. He joins us from Brussels. Brecht, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So we've long known that the war effort extends beyond the battlefield and into the digital world. But how are both sides using misinformation and disinformation to their advantage?
2: Well, yeah, this is, of course, a major other battleground we have not talked about yet. But you want to change the narrative. And that's that's the main thing that's what's happening with disinformation campaigns. Uh, for example, one of the main reasons why Putin started this war is because all Ukrainians are Nazis. That's like his main point. He wants to do a denazification of this special military operation. So if you want this as your main goal, the main thing you want to achieve, you first have to make the point that all Ukrainians are Nazis. Like it's not self-evident, of course. So you spread this information, you spread clips, you spread pictures that fit into this narrative. And we've seen this all, all, all year long. We have seen pictures popping up of people with uh, swastika tattoos, which were not related to Ukraine. We've seen so many stories which fit into a narrative. And I think that's one of the battlegrounds we're talking about.
0: Your work as a fact checker at NAC helps debunk claims that gain traction online. In January, you debunked a story claiming that U.S. Army tanks were headed to Ukraine. How did you go about disproving that?
2: Well, what we do is we use OSIN, so this open source intelligence. It's a very uh, rich word to say we watch a lot of clips online and try to compare them. Uh, we just gather a lot of information which is publicly available. In this case, it was uh, people just filming with their smartphone um, trains passing by with tanks on them. And people thought, okay, we have heard something about a deal between Biden sending sending tanks and military equipment to Ukraine. So probably these are these tanks, right? But this, this happened so quickly after that we were like, this is not possible. This has just been made public. It's not possible that these tanks are already going to Ukraine right now. So what did we do? We, we geolocated a lot of these videos. So we looked like, okay, where is this filmed? Where is this train heading? We put them all on a map. And apparently, they were not going to Ukraine, they were going to Lithuania, more to the north of Europe, to the Baltic countries, and it was just um, a NATO troop movement, so to say. So by looking into these videos and comparing a lot of them, we can find out the truth about a claim or a video, and that's what we do.
0: But Brecht, even in the process of debunking that claim, it is so hard to rewrite a narrative or correct disinformation once it's spread online, unless someone's actively looking for that information. So once you've fact-checked a story like that, how do you try to get it to reach as many people as possible?
2: Yeah, that, that's a good question. We have some, someone at connect who really tries to bring the fact-checks we do to people who are doubting about this. So if you're on Twitter and you're saying like, uh, these tanks are going to Ukraine, um, uh, this, this is the case, then she will Reach out to this person, talk to talk to him, and and say like, oh, maybe you should read this article because it's not entirely true. So that's the way we we try to do this. For me, it, it's sometimes feels like a game of whack-a-mole, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you 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 try to debunk one story, and three other stories have have popped up. That's true, and that's sometimes uh, discouraging, but. I try to learn people how they can do this themselves. Sometimes it's not so difficult. Sometimes you don't have to put 10 videos on a map and do a lot of in, in, in investigative things. Sometimes it's just a really quick reverse image search to find where the picture is coming from. And, you know, It's not the case. So by writing these stories, by telling them, by explaining them on Twitter, we learn you and me and everyone who's listening to do these kind of things themselves. And that's, I think, is the power of OSINT of this kind of investigation, that you're not uh, a powerless person and you can get overwhelmed by this information. Yeah, true. But you can also do something yourself. You can try to do some research yourself and debunk yourself. It's not so difficult. And a lot of people are doing it professionally, like me. Uh, A lot of people are fact-checking as as, uh, professional journalists. But also... Volunteers are doing this. It's the same as Dina told uh, before the break, like a lot of volunteers are joining in this effort and that's great.
0: Well, Brecht, how does the spread of disinformation affect the public's perception of the war?
2: Yeah, that's that, that's that's hard for me to, to like really give a, a, an overview on. But of course it, it changed narratives and, and that's one point. So, so people start build, getting into this narrative. Another thing is that it's, erodes trust i would say in, in 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 mainstream media for example because you see so much things popping up and you don't know what's true what's not true so you start doubting everything and that's that's of course very bad for a democracy uh, because if we do, cannot agree on what are the facts what's true and what's not it's difficult to have a debate about these facts and i think that's 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 a major problem for us I would not say in Belgium, for example, that it really has changed the narrative about the war, the disinformation campaigns. Like, it's not at that point. But certainly, some people are just, yeah, not believing anything anymore. And that's a big problem, I would say.
0: That's Brecht Castell. He's a journalist and fact checker at NAC, a Belgian weekly news magazine. Brecht, thanks for your time. You're welcome. We're discussing cyber warfare. We'll be back with more of our conversation after this quick break. Let's get back to the discussion with this message from one of you. No one should be surprised that cyber attacks are part of war strategy. This has been going on for at least 20 years, and now the capabilities are accessible to all countries, not just the global superpowers. It's not the first or the last time this will happen. Kabi, thanks for that message. Dina, I'd love to hear your response to that.
1: Yeah, I think that there's actually been a cyber component that we've been watching pretty intently since 2014 when the Russians first went into Crimea and other areas of Ukraine, sort of a foothold or a toehold. And there started to be an onslaught from that. I think what's different is that we always saw cyber as sort of an add-on or something that you put on top. It was the whipping cream on top of the ice cream of conventional warfare. And I don't think that's the case anymore. I think that they're really starting to be of a piece and that when you think about a strategy or a battle plan, you're no longer thinking about here's kinetic and then we'll put cyber on top but you're thinking how is cyber going to help our troops in the way that uh, when we were speaking earlier before the break about how they actually have clearly computer geeks embedded with invading forces so that they can take advantage of a cyber uh, you know, offensive at the same time to make it better for the more conventional forces going forward.
0: Well, at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington back in October, you spoke about the threat of Russian cyber attacks with Jen Easterly. She's the director of the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency.
1: We are not at a place where we should be putting our shields down. The environment is very difficult. The Russians are very unpredictable. Their back is up against the wall. We've seen these horrific kinetic attacks against civilian infrastructure.
2: And we may be seeing a lot worse coming.
0: What's the most concerning cyber activity we're seeing out of Russia right now, Dina?
1: I don't know if we can say. I think the wiper malware that we discussed before, where it actually wipes a hard drive and then starts destroying things in the network, is one of the more concerning things we're seeing. But I think a lot of listeners may not realize that there's a lot of stuff going on on the uh, the fringes of the war, right? I mean, we're in Russian networks. And the rest of what Jen Easterly said in that quote was that that um, we need to realize that we understand the Russian playbook and it's partly our playbook as well. And that means that the Russians are in our networks, we think. And they're always probing to see how they can get into those networks. And by that, I mean infrastructure networks like power plants and water treatment, et cetera, et cetera. And by the way, the US is in theirs too. And this is the way you know, they're trying to keep in... Um, Equilibrium, uh, equilibrium. Uh, but I, I think that uh, the uh, writer or caller is right that that in fact, cyber has been around for a really long time, but the way it's being utilized is really changing.
0: Well, and I wonder, Dina. You know, we, we talk a lot about technology and ethics on this show, and whether watching Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how cyber warfare is being used there whether it's raising any questions or conversations about how the U.S. might use cyber warfare moving forward?
1: I, I think the ethical issue is something that hasn't been thought through. I mean, there are some cyber norms that have been set up, but uh, you know there are war norms too. You're not supposed to bomb hospitals. You're not supposed to bomb civilians, right? So um, that ethical part of cyber just hasn't been ironed out. There's not a, a universal... excuse me, there's not a universal understanding of what's okay in cyber and what's not. Mm. And I think that uh, after, as the war goes on, I think those conversations are going to become more stark because now we're actually seeing it in action in a way we haven't before. It was more a, a possibility than it was a reality. And I think that's changing the conversation a lot. And I think maybe... One of the bright spots that is going to come out of this is that there will be some sort of norm setting when it comes to the cyber realm so that people uh, don't overstep.
0: Hmm. What more can the U.S. do at this point to monitor Russian cyber threats?
1: Uh, Internally or in Ukraine, or both?
0: Both. Both.
1: Uh, Well, there's something called endpoint detection. Endpoint detection is basically, think of it as a big moat. Around uh, you know uh, a country in the, uh, or an electronic moat where you're actually seeing everything come in and out of a country, and I think there's an education now that is happening with the war in Ukraine that you understand that you need to be much more careful about all, everything you do. Everything is connected now, and one of the reasons why cyber wasn't a big component before is because not everything was connected. But now it is. And now you can break into, for example, they talk a lot about supply chain. Well, it works also in cyber, right? You could break into a, a you know, substation of a an, ele- an electrical power uh, grid, and you break into that substation, and that gives you access to the entire network. So everybody has to be careful. It's not just the big NAFTA gas company. It's not just PG&E. It has to be everybody who possibly has a connection to them. You know, the big... Uh, a hack that got everybody thinking about hacking was Target years and years ago. You remember? Yeah. And the way that they uh, the hackers got into Target and stole and stole all those credit card numbers was by actually getting in through a supplier who did their air conditioning. So I think that what needs to be uh, understood is that um, everybody is a weak link now because of the way things are are connected and so everyone has to have more of this sort of cyber alertness it's kind of what we're trying to do with the podcast is that people always thought that cyber was too technical and we go a long way to telling stories about cyber so that it's not about the technicality it's about how everybody has to be involved now and that um, it's not just the big companies that they're attacking anymore it's your school it's your city hall it's your hospital it's you know the mall it's your dentist and uh, so it's not somebody else's problem anymore. It's it's all of our problems.
0: As we said earlier, experts warn that a large-scale debilitating Russian cyber attack could affect NATO allies. We, we've talked about the U.S. and some of the protections uh, they're trying to put in place. But are we seeing coordination among the NATO allies?
1: Very much. So there's something called the Five Eyes, which is basically... Uh, it, English-speaking countries who who share their intelligence and uh, and what we're seeing is that people are starting they share information in a way that they never have before. This was one of the things that came up at that council on foreign relations uh, session that I moderated with Jen Easterly and with the head of cyber common NSA uh, General Paul Nakasone. What Ukraine has done is allowed a lot of people who were having different conversations about cyber to start having the same conversation about cyber. And they're setting up units to where they're saying, we're seeing this in our networks. Here, we're gonna put it out sort of a, as an all call to say, we're seeing this, are you seeing this too? And there's a lot more sharing of information among the allies in terms of what they're seeing in their networks so that everybody can protect against them. And they're being much more vocal about it. And I think that is one of the, another one of the really big changes that we're seeing post-invasion of Ukraine is that uh, the sharing of information is making everybody stronger. And it's a, a, they also have something called defend forward, which is something that the NSA, it's sort of a, their motto for the way that they're dealing with cyber. And what it means is you go forward to try and find the enemy instead of letting the enemy come to you. So you go and you look in their networks and see what they're up to so that, and you, you help say allies, see what they're up to in their networks. That way you can anticipate better. And it used to be we were more sitting back on our heels and and had the moat mentality that we'll just make sure they don't get in. Now they're going far forward with hunt teams to find what they're testing so that there's a preparation for it before it happens.
0: Russia is expected to launch a new offensive, specifically targeting Ukraine's Donbass region in the east. How is the Kremlin expected to use cyber criminals to aid the military effort there?
1: Was really interesting, right? Because they have all these different military units FSB, GRU, they, they have these um, great sounding names for all their hacking teams Sandworm, Armageddon. Uh, But they also, because a lot of the people who were um, hacking for the Russian government who were part of this apparatus or were even IT professionals in Russia, they feel so uncomfortable with what's going on. A lot of them have left. There's been a huge brain drain in Russia. In addition to that, the people who would help them don't really want to help them. So what they're having to do is Russia has the greatest contingent of cyber criminals in the world. Most of the ransomware attacks that you see are actually traced back to Russia. Uh, Most of the really bad hacks are, well, they're the big four, right? There's China, there's Russia, there's North Korea, and there's U.S. They're the ones who are sort of doing the most in the cyber realm. And so what's happening is that Russia is basically saying to cyber criminals, hey, we need your help. And we're not going to arrest you even though we know you're stealing cryptocurrency, even though we know you're taking hospitals for ransom and locking up their networks. Instead of giving you a bad time about that, do us a favor do this. And now they're adding to the war effort. Um, there's always been a sort of gray uh, grayness to how much Moscow was ever going to crack down on these ransomware criminals. But now they're using them as part of their offensive. And I think we're going to see more and more of that.
0: Dean, I'm curious to hear what you'll be monitoring in, in the weeks and months
1: ahead. Well, We're definitely monitoring you know, ransomware attacks and whether those are going to kick up because those have deniability. So, uh, right, so uh, Russia could ask cyber criminals to target certain things and say, hey, it wasn't us. It was just these uh, cyber criminals. We have no control over them. So I think we're going to see an uptick in that. Um, I don't know that we're really going to see. I know the intelligence uh, is saying that there's going to be a new onslaught of cyber attacks. But I think the Russians are doing what they can. And they have a very limited, one of the things that came out of the Ukraine report that came out, uh, this week was that they have a really limited pool of talent, and that pool of talent is being stretched to its limits. And because of that, I, I'm not sure we're going to see, maybe they'll get lucky, maybe they'll get into something that, that uh, is vulnerable, that people didn't anticipate. That's all, you, you only need to be right once, right, to have a really big attack. But uh, I don't know that we're going to see a huge difference in cadence, but if, it, if you continually try to attack something, sooner or later you might get in, and I think that's what we're going to see. And
0: Dina, in terms of how the U.S. moves forward in this area, what are you watching for there?
1: I think we're going to see more from Cybercom and NSA in discussing what it is that they're doing as part of the war effort, how their hunt teams are, are working towards this, what they're learning about Russian hacking. I think we'll, we'll get more education in that respect. And um, obviously, that's something that we're, we're chasing uh, a lot.
0: That's Dina Temple Rastin. She's the host and executive producer of Click Here, a weekly cyber and intelligence news podcast. Dina, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you so much.
0: Today's producer was Lauren Hamilton. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.